Hey, this is Barbara Corker, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. Do you ever dream of starting your own business? Do you ever wonder if your future partner might be sitting across the hall in the other cubicle? And does work really have to feel like work? Well, today I'm talking with Dave Heath and Randy Goldberg of Bombas, who did exactly that and built an empire one sock at a time. Listen in. So how'd you guys meet? I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but everybody wants to know. And I haven't really read that. So Dave and I, um, we met working at um, a previous job. We were working at a media startup. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were both early employees there. I was the sixth employee. He was the seventh employee. It was a a great place to work. We were covering food and nightlife and interesting things going on in New York. Um, So we had like a, a newsletter that we wrote. And, you know, we were in different departments, but we became fast friends. And I think we bonded over an interest in businesses and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we just kind of became lunch buddies and then just good friends. And we met, yeah, working together at another job. And then one day we were having lunch and, you know, Dave had seen a quote on Facebook that said, socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. It was a Salvation Army campaign that they, they were doing. And he shared it with me. He said, Have you ever, did you know about this? And I said, I, I didn't. And that was the spark of the idea for Bombas. And Dave, was it the idea that appealed to you that there was a demand for socks? Or was it the idea that these guys at the homeless shelters really needed socks and it spoke to your heart and you wanted to do something about it? I mean, so I, I'll even back up one step before that, right? So my dad was an entrepreneur. I watched him start a business in the basement of our house and move it to the garage and then get an office and, you know, brick by brick over 35 years, build a business and, you know, kind of the old fashioned way. Now you see all these, you know, Gen Zers, they write an idea on a napkin, they come on Shark Tank, they want to raise $300 million on day one uh, with no proof of concept. But, um, we went so on Shark Tank, Dave. <laughs> I, yeah, but we had, we had sales, Randy. We did. Different. We- so yeah, so I, I kind of always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I went to school for entrepreneurship. I started businesses in high school. And, you know, I was just like, that was my main interest, right? And so when I graduated. Do you think because of your dad that that was the role model, you figured that's how I'll make a living? Or you love the fact that your dad was in control or he was your hero? What was the turn on there? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, if, you know, part, part genetic, part, you know, like nurture, like nurture nature, right? The combination, I think of the two. Um, I'm a consummate salesperson, just like my dad. And I think I like got really, you know, when all of my friends were getting internships at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and all these banks that no longer exist, I sold Cutco knives door to door. Like that was like what I did. And I just liked the idea of controlling my own destiny and not having a boss that I had to report to. Um, so I knew that was like the end goal for me. And, you know, I went to school for entrepreneurship. And then I think when I graduated, I just like, you know, I kept exercising that muscle by looking 
for problems in the world that I could solve through business, right? And I, and I tell this to a lot of entrepreneurs that like, you know, people who want to start businesses, it's like, it's like dating, right? You've got to like try a bunch of different things and you got to always kind of put yourself out there uh, until you find the one. Um, and so I think I was more fascinated about solving problems. And the time that I, at the time where I saw this quote, Tom's shoes was growing like crazy, right? Their buy one, give one model. They were trying to give shoes to, you know, underprivileged children in Argentina and Africa. And the model was really taking off. And so I was like, huh, I wonder if we can create a sock company that donates a pair of socks to solve this problem in our community. And then we like just started working on it. What was your response, Randy? Did you think right away, this is a hot idea where you were like, I don't know about socks? <laughs> I got to be honest. I don't think any either one of us thought it was a hot idea right off the bat. How can it be socks hot to begin with? I don't get it. It's not no, sexy. Nobody, nobody grows up dreaming of being in the sock business, Barbara. Nobody. But here we are today. So we, you know, we just wanted to help out. Honestly, that was it. We said, this. why is this a problem? So what we did was we called... Bowery Mission. And we called shelters in New York and we said, is this real? Are socks something that you need? Is this an issue? And every shelter said, yeah, it's a huge need. We're, we don't allow people to donate used socks for hygiene reasons. And then we have to go and buy them, which eats into our budget and there's never enough. And people don't go buy them and bring socks. So we're like, wow, there's real fit here. And then we just started to look at socks. Like you said, unsexy, nobody cared. Even the companies that were making socks didn't care about socks. It's cra right. It was crazy. It was just, you would see the same thing, boring colors, scratchy cotton, bad materials. And if you were the type of person who cared about what you put on, cared about your appearance, socks didn't even figure into that. Like, so they were an afterthought for the companies making it an afterthought for the marketplace. And they were an afterthought for people donating product to homeless shelters. It was just a hole. And we just got excited about fixing socks, right? Like, okay, what are the problems? Once we started to look at socks, we're like, these just are, you know, most socks just suck. They're terrible. They have wrong, they're just designed wrong. So we just started to, to chip away at it. And it took us two years to make one pair of socks that we felt was good enough for our new, newly high standards when it came to things you put on your feet. Dave, I remember reading a quote of yours, I believe, uh, where you said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, you said you care more about making a quality sock than you cared ever about what you would sell it for or who you'd sell it to. That that was, yeah. was that an exaggeration? Or you just want to make no. a sock and then you worried about the rest of it afterwards? You know, it's it's interesting. Part of the the fun part of our story is I was telling my dad about this idea over dinner one night and he said, you know, your godfather was very successful in the hosiery business. You should go talk to him. I don't know what he did. Turns out that he was the CEO and president of Gold Toe for like 20 years. And then he started a private label sock manufacturing business. And so when I went to talk with him, I was like, look, this is what I want to do. I want to create a better product. And he's like, you're going to benefit from the fact that you've never spent any time in the manufacturing and apparel world because you're going to look at this product differently. He said, most people, myself included, we were asking ourselves, how can we make socks for less than a penny? Not kidding, less than a penny. So, you know, when the, 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 the joke that he used to say is like, you can't talk in terms of how much does a pair cost? You've got to talk in terms of dozens, right? Like that's how the industry would quantify because you would have to have enough of a value in order for it to be over even a cent. 
And so when I started looking at this and I grew up with, you know, sensitivity issues being ADHD, you know, tags and things would bother me. I turned my socks inside out as a kid because the annoying toe seam. And I was like, well, I just want to come at this from making the best product possible. And I'll figure out, I'm a good salesperson. I'll figure out how to sell the product later. I didn't come at this from like, oh, it's got to have this margin profile and this amount of, you know, blah, 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 and all these industry terms. You know, we, we were, we were customers, right? Like we were building the product for ourselves. And so I was like, okay, let's do a seamless toe. And the member of the manufacturer, they were like, no, 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 you can't do a seamless toe. And I was like, why? And they're like, seamless toes are reserved for $30, you know, you know, uh, Italian dress socks because, it, and I was like, why? And it they go, well, because it costs 10 cents a pair to put a seamless toe on. And I go, 10 cents. I was like, I think I can get the consumer to spend 10, 10 cents on like a feature like this. And so we just started building like the best product possible. And we figured we would figure out how to sell it later. But you, you know, what Dave didn't tell you is his godfather said, you guys want to start a sock business? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I find anyone who's made a bloody fortune in a business will tell someone young, don't do it. I don't get it. They're just remembering the pain, I guess. The approach is the same with how we design products, whether it's socks, tees, underwear, or slippers, right? We really focus on the little small product features that make a, when added up together, make a huge difference, greater than there's some other parts kind of a philosophy, right? So on its own, our seamless toe is an amazing feature. And the cotton that we use or the merino wool is really special. And the way that we stitch a heel together and the fact that we test 137 tension levels on a calf sock so they stay up and don't fall down, but won't leave a mark. All these things are individually interesting. Our customers don't know about all those different features necessarily, but they just, they put our products on and they think, wow, these are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. This t-shirt, this is the first t-shirt I want to grab on laundry day right? These are slippers that make me feel like I don't want to leave the house. This is underwear that makes me forget that I'm wearing underwear. And all of that is because we're so intense about product development. What do you guys make of the common uh, belief that margins are important? I mean, everything you learn in business school is quite opposite in terms of approach and using the left brain and assessing things. Whereas you guys kind of came out of it almost from the heart out. I mean, what, what do you about all those, even the, the people we see on Shark Tank constantly, they come, what are your margins? What's your cost? How many people, you know, it's all analytical stuff that people tend to wrap themselves around as young entrepreneurs and believe in after they figure out how they're going to get the money, which seems to be the God that everybody yeah. serves. But what about you guys? What do you make of all that? You think the heads are not on straight or is that another way of doing business, starting a business? I think where it comes from is now that we're at scale, right? Margin is wildly important, right? Because margin allows us to pay the best salaries of anybody in our field, right? Margin allows us to have an amazing office. Margin allows us to donate product. Margin allows us to go above and beyond in our mission and give, you know, dollars away and all of these other things. Where, where I think this is not dissimilar to your comment before about why do people who've made a boatload of money in an industry tell young people, I think they're living from the later stage of the advice of, yeah, at scale, margin does really matter. Mm -hmm. Before you've sold a single pair of something, prove whether the customer wants it or not. And then you can kind of figure, but it has to be directional, right? Like if we came out of the gate and somebody was like, oh, well, it's going to cost $43 to make your pair of socks. I'd be like, okay, probably not a 
there's probably not enough margin to create a hundred dollar sock that everyone, you know, like the market's going to be small. So I, I think it's a give and a take, you know, but I think when you're starting and you're trying to innovate, you have to kind of throw everything out the window, right? And just try to create the best product possible. You know, again, you look at Elon Musk and Tesla, right? People would be like, well, there's no infrastructure for electric cars. There's none of this stuff. It's going to cost too much. And yeah, it took a lot of investment in a really, really big bet. And now every other car manufacturer is following suit. So, you know, I can't sit here and say, oh, don't ever worry about margin. But if you haven't started yet, don't worry about margin. Just try to figure out how to make the best product possible. And if customers like it, then you can figure out how to increase your, decrease your costs or increase your price. Or, I mean, when we came out of the gate, we had a $9 price point because that's what we thought we should do. Turns out our customers are willing to pay $12 a pair. And that was the actual right price point because if there was a quality to price discrepancy and that, that increased our margin just there alone. Mm-hmm. And Randy, when uh, when you make a decision, when you're collecting your thoughts together to make a decision and go into a different line beyond socks, when you expanded, oh, is that logical? Or do you guys just say, what do you feel in your gut? Let's get dedicated to it, make the best t-shirt and we'll, we'll worry about that later. Or do you or do you approach new ideas differently? And do you collaborate? I'd be curious. You collaborate. I think like anything else, it's a combination of gut and logic, right? I mean, we sat down probably within the first month of starting this business and made a list of things that we wanted to do. And then we just put it away for a while. We knew we had to really focus on socks. And sure, we made some mistakes along the way. I, every entrepreneur does. But with launching the next product, if, if you were, if you had a sock company, let me ask you, what would the logical next product be for you? I would think uh, slippers because it's not part of the body or something like that, which probably right. makes not much sense. So we asked our customers and that's part of it. We, we had our own kind of hunch, that's part of it. And then the third part of the equation for us when determining a new product, is we talked to our giving partners and we said, what's the need in the homeless community? What do people need more than anything else? Socks. What's the next thing they need? Underwear. Okay, that makes sense. Socks and underwear, like let's own the top drawer. So for us, it was a combination of the homeless community, the need there, what makes logical sense, you know, at some point you make socks and underwear, you start to think, okay, these guys, I trust the comfort that comes from Bombas. If you're a customer, they make the most comfortable socks. What else can they bring for me? That would be really comfortable underwear. Okay. Another product that you put on first in the morning that you are closest to your body. That's something I think people can logically understand from Bombas. Same with slippers. It's kind of like sock adjacent, right? Which is interesting. And that's kind of where we're at socks, slippers, underwear, and t-shirts. Um, I'd like to switch, if I could, to the subject of partnerships. Um, would either of you have succeeded in the business, do you think, without each other? Definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. We, <laughs> Dave and I have a similar outlook on the world. We believe deeply in community. We wanted to run the kind of business that we would, wanted, would have wanted to work at when we were younger. We wanted to surround ourselves with smart people that are interesting and engaging and I think we have a similar outlook and we do different things. And that made for a really, really interesting partnership. We come together when it comes to the culture of the company, strategy, the idea of like looking far ahead, but then in the things that we needed when we were building the business, we could do different things. And we're friends and we always said, let's, you know, let's put our friendship ahead of the business. And I think it'll make the business better. What do you each do 
your roles in the business? Are they very opposite? Because in all the businesses I've invested in Shark Tank, my best businesses, without exception, are partnerships with opposite skill sets. So I'm thinking I landed on a formula in the last 10 years that it's essential in a partnership to have opposite skills. What about you guys? Well, so I'll add on, we have two other co-founders as well, um, Aaron Walk and, and Andrew Heath, who's my brother. Um, and all four of us are still involved in the business. And I actually think that it was the combination of the four of us and all of the blind spots that each of us individually have that the other one kind of rounds out. But I, you know, it's kind of like a large Venn diagram, right? Each person has their own unique skill set. But there's where we overlap are in terms of things like values and ethics and, you know, just wanting to be a good person and treat people the right way. But I'd say my skill set is really kind of in sales and, you know, strategy and a big picture vision, getting up in front of teams or investors and kind of giving them, you know, the hard pitch. Mm -hmm. You know, Randy, you know, has magic around creating stories and brand and and thinking through how brands evolve and live in a customer's lives but my brother's you know he's a quant guy he's operational he did finance for the first five years of the business and so everybody and aaron kind of brought randy's word vision of a strategy to life through creative and design and so we each uniquely had our own skill set and then we've brought people in along the way. We've brought a marketing expert. We've brought a PR and communications, a technologist, a product for like, you know, we just started assembling this incredible team um, around us that, again, each person has their own unique skill set and, and ownership, but we all overlap in the areas that matter most around how do we want to build and operate the business? We all believe of putting our customers first. We all believe in creating great product above profit. We all believe in giving back. We all believe in treating our people well. There are these kind of core tenants that I think it's it's less about what we're uniquely good at. It's more about the synergies that we have that I think multiply, you know, in a in a great business. One of my best businesses are cousins named lobsters, and the two cousins are opposite to each other in every way, except philosophy of business. Uh, but when they started out in those very early days, I, I had never seen it before. Uh, they spent about two days together trying to assess what their skill sets were and building uh, almost territorial fences, not so not concrete, so to speak, but an understanding. In those early days when you were with your other two founding partners, I'm picturing four guys together. Uh, you don't know all that much about yourselves at that point as to how you'd interact. Was there a conscious decision to say, okay, you got marketing, you got finance, you got this. Did you divvy up those responsibilities or did you? Yes. Knowing that I was going to assume the role of CEO, I very deliberately wanted to make sure that there was autonomy and ownership by the person who had the most amount of expertise for that subject matter. So whenever there was a brand decision, Randy got to make the call. Whenever there was a finance decision, Andrew got to make the call. Whenever there was a design decision and so on and so forth. And then when there was like, big kind of tiebreakers between oftentimes Randy from the brand perspective and Andrew in the finance perspective, I would kind of step in to make the like tiebreaker call. But even today, we still operate the business from the top all the way down. It's like if you're a functional ownership and you are hired to run affiliate marketing and that's what your expertise and experience is, you don't want me as the CEO who doesn't know 
jack shit about affiliate marketing coming in and making decisions around affiliate marketing. So I always find it hilarious when I people cold sales me and they're like, I, you know, can I speak to you for 15 minutes about your marketing stack? And I'm like, I don't even know what our marketing stack is. Like, why are you bothering me? Like, go bother our marketing person. So I think that delineation of, of autonomy and allowing, you know, the expert to make the decision, I think has allowed us again to, to scale much faster and much easier. Um, I mean, Randy and I came from a classic micromanaged business. And I mean, we wow. just watched the bottleneck stop at the top. And we were just like, we, we can't get anything done because every decision, I'm not kidding to the point where like, before you sent emails out to partners, he'd be like, I want to read the email. I mean, it was just like, it, you know, it's just, we were, we, and we took that away and we were like, we cannot run a business that way. Wow. He did your favor actually. Yeah, he did. 100%. Big time. Yeah. And another uh, aspect of that, you know, when the four of us got together and we, we sort of put out on the table what we know, we also talked about what we don't know. Mm. And that was really important early on is not saying there's certain things where you say, all right, I got to go figure this out. And I'm going to, but there's other things where he said, it's going to take too much time to figure this out. We need to bring somebody in who's way smarter than we are about this area to help us out either as an advisor early on or as an early hire and make sure that that person, we, we find someone we trust who can run that piece of it. And I think people get caught up in, you know, I'm the founder, this is early days, I'm bootstrapping this, I got to do everything myself. You have to be a little bit humble and just say what you don't know and find somebody else who does know that thing. You know, I've invested so far because I've been on that show so long. I think I was born there, I guess 13, maybe 14 <laughs> years, I'm not sure. But I have to tell you the 80% of the businesses that fail, which are the batting averages that I have, 80% fail, mm. uh, they seem to have the markings of a good start. But I would say the uh, number one death knoll uh, that happens usually within three years, partnership issues, partnership issues again and again. And I would almost put it differently. I would say lack of respect for each other and insecurity and the inability to delegate, truly delegate the responsibility, not just the task. Are you able now that the business has grown into a substantial business to, to delegate and have everyone in different departments do the same, to have the autonomy uh, to make a decision when they want to make it? Or have you found steering a bigger company is more difficult to get decisions made and things done? I think, I think we're, we've always been good at this. I have to tell you, like, because we are very honest about what we're not great at. And like Dave said, we've built this business around functional experts. So, you know, there have been moments where we've had to kind of sit down and say, like, we're holding things a little too tightly. Let's, let's make sure that our people feel like they have the space and the support and the trust to make these important decisions to help grow the business in ways that we couldn't have thought of ourselves. I called Randy two weeks ago because I, we just wrapped up kind of a big investor pitch, you know, period. And, you know, I was super busy. I was on the road virtually and, and physically kind of talking to people. And I kind of came back. And when that like project was wrapped, and it's happened to me a few times where like I go to Randy and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I, I show up and I don't feel needed. I feel like, you know, the coaches put me on the bench and I, I'm the CEO and one of the founders of the company. And it's, be, and it, and he's like, you, this is because we've done a good job of like building great people around you. Like you're not needed. 
And that I think is a mark of a good founder CEO is like, you get to the point, like your job is to make yourself obsolete. Yes. Sounds good. More difficult to do, I think. Way more difficult. Very difficult. Sitting on the bench, Dave, where you're not insecure on some level thinking, geez, I'm not really needed here. What am I going to do? Like, look. Of course I was. Of course I was. Yeah. Uh, you went to Aruba or how did you handle that? <laughs> the no, I went to Randy and Randy, <laughs> you know, and this is like the talk about a good partnership. I, I went to him and he was like, look, like, let's, let's find something where your skills can be added. You know, it's, it's maybe it's not necessarily impacting the business today, but let's maybe take that time and think bigger picture or what are some offshoots? Is there a foundation we can start? Like, where can you put your time? that could still have an impact on the business that doesn't require you to make decisions around marketing spend or geography expansion or what new product we should make. Do you ever go out and have a retreat the four partners together to kind of collaborate on what do we do now and to put a business plan or at least a loose business plan in place? Like here's where we're going next. Here's the next mountain. This is where we're all going to brainstorm and decide what the best peaks are to attack here or take a total directional turn. Do you ever do that collaboration away from the job site? Funny, we, we did that yesterday. <laughs> and my man yesterday. But we, we don't do that just the four of us. We do that with the entire like senior executive team. So how big is that senior executive team? 12 people? Yeah. Nine, pe- nine, nine people? people. Yeah. Eight. Eight or nine. Small enough to be tight and fast, I think. Totally. Exactly. And, you know, the input comes from all over that team. And then um, they're expected to communicate what we've built and documented. And, you know, we go forward from there. And the four of us also, we find our moments to get away and connect. And we're all still close friends. So we, we see each other socially, if you believe it, after all these years working in the business. Yeah. Believe, unbelievable. And have a good time or just see each other? <laughs> Great time. You love each other. <laughs> Yeah, but you but you consistently get away for those retreats. Is that part of your magic or is it once in a blue moon? No, no, no. We the, the idea is to do it, you know, a few times a year. Um, and, and interestingly enough, we we know the power of a retreat so much that even from day one, we actually do full company retreats. And I always found it so silly, right? You go on people say, Oh, we're going on a company retreat. And then you sit for eight hours in a conference room of some, you know, pretty mediocre hotel in Boring. some city somewhere else. And I'm like, why'd you even bother t- taking the whole company to a new place if all you're going to do is yap at them for eight hours a day? And then maybe they get to sit by the pool for an hour. So we kind of flipped this idea on its head and we do two company retreats a year, one in the spring and one in the fall. And we take everyone away and there's actually no work at all for four days. We just let people hang, right? And we do things like we bring a magician in or we'll have, you know, speaking engagements or but like things that are motivated and exciting and allow people to connect beyond because we know the value of it. We every now and then we need to sit down and go out to dinner and just blow off steam. And maybe sometimes we're celebrating. Maybe sometimes we're complaining. Maybe we're feeling stuck on something. And this allows the team to do that cross-functionally. I always said, you know, you can't replace the value of two people sitting in a canoe on a lake and realizing that their parents were both Holocaust survivors or, you know, like, 
like they, these things that come out that people realize they create really personal bonds. Mm-hmm. And I think that just makes the entire team much stronger as well. When it's everybody together. Absolutely. All right. Um, I, I noticed uh, again and again on Shark Tank and outside of Shark Tank, a greater preponderance of would-be entrepreneurs that I don't honestly think have the personality or the talent pool naturally to do it, to start a business, uh, jump through the hoops, crash through the walls, remain optimistic when all chips are down. And you know, everything that's involved in growing any business is no easy task. I also uh, on occasion teach at Columbia, a group of graduate students all specializing in entrepreneurship. And I'm telling you, I could tell from the questions in the class, if there's 10% of the guys and gals in the class who have even have a shot at building a business, I'll eat my hat, okay? Uh, I really do feel that way. And yet I'll sit with a cab driver whose father was a first generation immigrant hustling like crazy, started a business. He wants to start a business. He'll pitch me. I have so much faith in that guy. Do you think- It's a long prelude, but I'm just curious what your impression is. Um, Do you think people are naturally inclined to make great entrepreneurs, whether their parents, like I think, Randy, your parents were entrepreneurs too, whether your parents were entrepreneurs or not, do you think there's a personality that's inclined to probably make a decent entrepreneur and other people who aspire to and have no business being in that lane? Yeah, I mean, I've learned over the years, and I'm sure you as well, right? You you know, you can't make you can't make broad statements and apply them to everybody. Right. Because I've seen people, cause trust me, I get pitched all the time as well. And will you mentor me, advise me? What do you think of this business idea? Will you invest in my seed round, whatever. And a lot of the times I write people off as the entrepreneur. Cause I'm just like, ah, oh, this person's a disaster. Sometimes the idea is so good that they can, you know, get past it. Right. Or the opportunity is so good, or maybe in their world, you know, if they're building a, technology product or something, maybe they don't need to have as much charisma or, you know, be as big of a leader or some of these other things. Um, But I do generally, you know, yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think there is a natural tenacity, but it's a fine line, right? Because if you're blindly optimistic, you can't check yourself when real risks, you know, uh, you know, surface, right? Because you, you know, that's the blindly running through the walls, you know, scenario. And sometimes on the other side of the wall is a fucking cliff, and you're just going to fall to your death, right? So, you know, it, but you also can't take every, you know, no, or, you know, every, you know, slight bump, and think, oh, well, that's it. I'm going to pack up my bags and go, you know, go home or, or, you know, it's over. So it's, it's this weird balance. And I don't know how you quantify it. I mean, I'm sure this is, you know, what every VC in the world is probably trying to figure out, but um, I, I do agree with you. I do. I don't believe that every single person can make a good entrepreneur. What about um, how much of it is about street smarts, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And if you can identify that, that's, that's gold right there. Because, you know, some people can really fake, fake that really well. But that, that is a large part of it. I think whatever you want to call it, intuition, street smarts, I think there's a large component of someone who's willing, who's, who's able to take a step back in the moment mm-hmm. and see things as they really are and not get caught up in some of the pressure or constraints or noise that comes in in these moments 
and can really see things for how they are and maybe even more how they will be, that's super valuable. And that's something that, you know, you can learn. And, you know, maybe it's by the time you're old enough to be starting a business, you have to have some of that. But I think you also, if you're fortunate enough to start a business um, that's good enough that allows you to make some mistakes, I think you learn some of that on the job as well. And, you know, there's a luck component to that as well. But I do think it's a part of it. Um, what about uh, you, Randy? You, uh, you're a child of an entrepreneur. Do you think you learned that from your parents? And how about you, Dave? You think just being around people, making those calls, it just becomes part of your MO. You just know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my parents owned a business together. My dad was a real hustler. He had a, a great business. And I certainly learned it from, from him and got advice from him along the way as I was building my career. I mean, when I was a kid, I would shovel snow or wash cars. I had my own businesses. I'm sure you hear this a lot from entrepreneurs. You start at a young age and you sort of get the, the bug and the thrill of being able to do something on your own and create your own little economy when you're a kid and, uh, and you get respect from people and, you know, you see things that work and don't work and you realize how hard it is. And, you know, a lot of those lessons help along the way. I think it was really valuable you know, for, for, to have parents who are both really entrepreneurial, my mom as well. One last adjective I want to question you about. How about competitiveness? Is this essential or is it an add-on? What do you think, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's essential. I think there's like a, I think there's just a drive, right? And, and whether it's competitive with, you know, a, another brand or another product, you know, I've always found it to be very self-competitive for myself. Like it, yeah. I've wanted to prove to myself that I can do it. Um, and and I'll, I'll add the comment, you know, on there, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I've got a brother and a sister. And even though my brother, you know, was one of the co-founders, I definitely have more of the, you know, risk-taking ideation, you know, founder-led bug than he does. And we both grew up under the same household. He's only three years older than me. It's not like we had vastly different childhoods. Um, he's a pragmatist, but he's also has an engineer's mind. So he can figure out complex problems. And maybe because of that, he can find, you know, and, and focus on how things break more than how things, you know, can succeed. Um, and that's why he made a really good CFO and a really good operations partner, because he's constantly saying, look out for the blind spots, you know, this is where we're going to fall. And, you know, and, and I'm more of a blind optimist and I, you know, I, I'm a big risk taker and I'm like, ah, I'm kind of like, it'll figure itself out. <laughs> so I think it was part, that's why I say it. it's like part nurture, part nature. I think I was gifted the personality type or, you know, it's like that guy that climbs, uh, you know, that crazy, you know, rock climbing guy with no strings. He like doesn't have the chemical, Thing in his brain to turn fear on, right? And I think to a certain degree, some entrepreneurs have a little bit of that where, you know, the senses in most normal people will be like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Run away. You're going to lose a ton of money. I remember when I told my parents I was quitting my job, I was making like a few hundred thousand dollars a year living in New York City. And they were like, uh, are you sure? No income, nothing. And I'm like, no, I just think yeah, it's going to work. Crazy. You think they would have been your fastest advocates, right? You're just like me, son. I'm surprised. Yeah. 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 Um, they were encouraging, but I think, you know, when it's your children, right? Like your whole, your whole being as a parent is to protect your children. 
So, um, you know, regardless of how successful you may have been in your own endeavors. Um, and, and still, I think, uh, I think there was that. And, and I remember my brother saying the same thing. He was like, are you sure? Maybe you don't quit until you have some sales. And oh, you know, wow. I was like, ah, no, no, no. I was like, I'll figure it out. It, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, when you want to get advice on taking a chance or, or uh, running with an option, the worst person to go to is someone who loves you because it's instinctive to want to protect you. And yet it's exactly. just what you'll run to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had an opposite thing in my family. We had 10 kids. My dad was not an entrepreneur. He worked for somebody his whole life and he washed trucks at night. He was a workman. Uh, but all of his children, except one, became an entrepreneur and a risk taker. Who knew? It's just, uh, it's kind of like, doesn't make any much sense, but he hated his bosses. And I think we all came out of that household thinking, we don't want a boss. Yeah. <laughs> How is it? Could you imagine for a moment after building the business you have, or even from the get-go, that you could ever work for someone else? I was never great at having a boss, I got to tell you. And it took me a little while to figure that out. But I, it was sort of the kind of thing where someone would tell me what to do or how to do it more than what to do. And I just wanted to kind of do the opposite thing. Um, and I've <laughs> finally figured out that I want to be productive and there's certain things I want to do, but it was better working for myself. What is the single best thing about working for yourself? What turns you on the well, greatest satisfaction? I also love having partners, right? So it's interesting, right? I, I'm, I'm not, there's a lot of people who are solo entrepreneurs and that's a different type of journey, I think, than the one that we're on. And we always talk about how much we rely on each other and how nice it is to have somebody to call for these major moments and the decisions, you know, like Dave talked about, he called me, you know, he, I might be his Aruba and vice versa, right? You talked about going to Aruba, but, you know, that's a nice thing. But at the end of the day, you know, taking the responsibility of a decision and getting to sort of create a vision and then execute against that. And for the thing that is in your mind that you can see and visualize in the future, something that you feel like in the best case scenario, this is how it works. You get to work every way, every day to chip away uh, at the, the thing that's blocking that and to sort of sculpt it into what you want. That is the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you are the one responsible for the vision and the future state of something. And you get to work towards it and gather and people around you who are just as excited about that vision. It's a great thing. I think uh, I'd say people like glamorize the media glamorizes, Oh, become an entrepreneur. You know, you get to create your own schedule and, you know, your freedom, you know, freedom, all of this freedom. And, I think where the freedom has come for me is, is in redefining the definition of work, right? I think most people go, oh, I've got to go to work, right? And, and they say it with kind of like a, an obligation and a disdain. And I say it with, because, it's, because I'm doing it for myself, right? It's entirely, it's changed the meaning of work for me where I don't, dread Mondays, right? I and but at the same time, work is now perpetual, right? If I'm sitting on a chairlift, you know, in you know, in 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 Colorado, I'm probably thinking about work, right? Or if I'm lying at you know in bed at night, I'm probably thinking about, oh, there's an opportunity here. Gotta have this conversation with that person tomorrow. So like, you know, it's a it's a gift and a curse in the sense that like, you know, 
you you don't ever feel like you can turn it off but at the same time you don't you don't come at it with the same level of um you know again disdain is the is the best word i can think of because you're it actually it's intriguing for you it becomes like a hobby in 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 that way you know what i think a word that could be substituted if you own your own business and you're thinking about monday morning i would like to say i'm going to my adventure because it's such yeah. a you know, like, oh, what's in that box? What are we going to find today? You know, you're working on two thirds of the day, maybe. But what's that other third, that wild card and that excitement that comes with it? I think people who don't have their own, uh, even people who really enjoy their job. I don't think you could ever get that, that satisfaction of knowing that you're getting to play God that day. You know, you could make your world exactly what yep. you Yeah, but something for everybody for sure yeah uh, what is yeah. the worst part of what you do the stuff if you wish even you have partners you have many people working for you one piece that you say you know if i could if i could only uh what would the only be to improve what you do to enjoy your your career and the building of your business you're stuck i think anything right away <laughs> i i think <laughs> because like we started this business and I think one of the things that has made us great is that we have a tremendous amount of empathy and humility in the way that we run this business. And so we deeply, deeply, deeply care about our people and our customers. And I will say that as you scale and you get more people and you get more customers with that natural, just statistically, you get more problems, right? You have more issues to deal with and it may still be the same percentage, mm -hmm. right? 1% of a hundred people is one person, right? But 1% of a thousand is, you know, 10 people, right? So it all becomes, you know, it, it's variable, but as a person, you don't delineate between one and 10. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that there's an issue these days, I feel like it's magnified and, I think more particularly around like the people related issues in the company, you know, you're, we're over 200 people. You just kind of come to the realization at some point that you can't make everybody happy. And mm -hmm. that becomes really difficult because you still care about each person mm -hmm. and it's hard to make decisions when you know that you can't, again, make every single person happy in your decisions. And so we're very excited to bring on a, a new chief human resources officer who I'm going to hand all of that stuff over to. Um, but no, as a leader of the company, you know, when you find out that somebody in your company is upset, just naturally, it's hard for me not to take that stuff home with me and feel and, and take it personally. Um, Cause I want to go and, you know, try to fix it. I've seen a lot of businesses through life cycles. And I can tell you that is the number one reason, other than if people just want to cash out for the sake of cash. But I find the number one reason people decide to sell their, their house or their business is they've just had it with making people happy. And they, it's almost like the mother who's worn out by having too many kids. I'm at yeah. I'm just out of here. It's, it's a very tricky thing to do because I don't think when you start a business, if you're a great leader and a great entrepreneur, you're loving people from top to bottom. But when it gets very large, it's hard to foster that same connection to get you over the injury uh, with the people you love. I, I don't know why. Where's 
entrepreneurs out. So I think it's got to be, for me, building my business, what saved me was just about when I was ready to see if maybe I should get a license for a gun. I would instead like book a vacation and get my temper down and out of there and get away from people. The same people I loved and will love again when I came back from the vacation, but I like not one more complaint. I'm sorry. You know, our years, it's a tough walk, but at least it gets people to turn over businesses or people would own them through generations. If not, (laughs) right. (laughs) Sounds like vacation was a good choice, Barbara. Oh, Oh, vacation was my go-to. There was a great quote that somebody had told me once and they said, this is right around the time when the company was getting larger. And I was like, I don't know how to deal with all these you know, employee issues. And they're like, the biggest problem is you hire employees for a role, right? You know, and on an org chart, it's, it makes a ton of sense. Oh, director of operations, you know, VP of marketing, you hire for a role and then a human being shows up. Right. And they show up with all of their personal baggage and all of their issues and everything and their personality. And he's like, so you hire employees and then people show up and you're like, it's hard in your head. You're just like, I'm trying to get a job done. And then, but you gotta, it's a, it's a funny like anecdote, but it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And it's, if you don't mind, I'm going to put it out my quote for yesterday, for tomorrow. It's my quote up with my name on it. You won't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't say it that way yeah um one last question just because i work with damon all the time does he do anything for your business my instinct he doesn't do nothing. what you, you know it- he he said you might try something like this and that we should remind you that we're the number one revenue business of all time on shark tank and it was his investment well, you let that little short man know that he is dead wrong because my company's revenues are much larger than yours. And I do know the margins, although I don't know yours. And I assure you, I'm doing much better than that little guy named Damon John. <laughs> no, but what does he do? What role does he play in the company, if at all? I know investors very often don't play a role other than putting money in or raging funding or what have you. No. No, D- Damon's been you know, and he'll be the first to admit it, right? He's not coming in and saying, you know, here's your digital marketing strategy. And, you know, this is what product to release. Damon's value over the years has really been more in telling us what not to do than what to do. Um, And I think having scaled his business in apparel over the years, He's like, don't work with these people. Don't sell through this channel. This is a pain in the ass. This is going to cost you more than it's worth. You're sitting on a rocket ship. The business is growing like crazy. Stay focused on socks. Stay focused on online. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's been largely the biggest value from just a mentor and having been there, done that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you. If there's anybody out there, you know, I've gone through this, you know, ringer so many times of, I I get these investor pitches, right? Of, oh, this person's investing and that person's investing and I've got this person on our cap table and whatever, whatever, whatever. If you're going out and taking investors, thinking that they are become, that they will become operators, you are dead wrong. And if they do become operators, that's even worse so you kind of want people who are gonna you know put some money in be there when you have a question to ask them but otherwise step out of the way 
Absolutely. I would agree wholeheartedly. Even when my entrepreneurs ask me for advice, I'm telling you the good ones, listen, they don't pay attention. They do exactly what they want. And I know I'm going to make money. So ones yeah. that have notes, I'm like, uh oh, I'm going to lose my cash on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, great hanging out with you. Uh, I wasn't surprised by anything you said because I had heard so many great things even before having the chance to hang out with you. You're terrific. I mean, I wish I had been Damon. I damn it wasn't on the set that day. I sure weren't on the set that day. I would have spotted the town. I would have overbid him easily. Okay. And, and if I'm you not- remember, I ran into you in the airport about six months prior. And I said something like, Oh, I think we're going to, you know, we're, we're casting for the show. And, and, you know, I told the casting directors, I said, you know, Hey, can you make sure Barbara's on there? I met her in the airport. Uh, I think you were on your way to, park city or something to go skiing and i told and, uh, you I, was, I would have invested in you right yeah you did based you on did. the people my my instincts are immediate i like them i yes i'm in or not but too damn bad and and i'll tell you my best businesses ask the producers that they wanted to be on when i was on the set and they were granted that so you should come back again yeah i'm gonna come back as a shark next time yeah we want to come as sharks come on let me let me say to you, have Damon pitch it. And when he pitches it, let me know. I'll pitch it to you. Okay. Sounds great. They, they do that and it would be great. But you got to choose one person. I'll never give two seats. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Randy. You're great, guys. I'm so happy. Thanks, to great talking to you. And that's all we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.